Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity that you give us to study your word, to be together as a family, uh, as a congregation. Thank you for the fellowship and the love that is here. Thank you, Lord God, that we all have uh, experienced your salvation through Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen. I think that many of us would agree that we live in a world plagued by anger. True? As one pastor put it, we live in an age of rage. We live in an age of rage. Chaos, destruction, violence, all find their root cause in anger. On January, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was fueled by anger. Damages done by angry rioters in various cities in 2020 will surpass $1 billion, according to the insurance data, and that was all because of anger. Shootings across the U.S. have been on the rise, all because of anger. These are but a few examples of anger-fueled incidents, big ones, that happen throughout the world. But we have to understand, it's not just the big things. The little things, they're innumerable that happen because of anger. New York Times in December of 2022 had this article in it. It's a quote from a lady who owns a restaurant, and they're commenting on something that happened at the restaurant. At a restaurant struggling with staff and food shortages in uh, Massachusetts, a group of diners grew so furious at the long wait for food that they demanded it be boxed up and then theatrically dump the whole order uneaten into the garbage. It's like abuse, Brandy Felt said. She, had to, she closed her Cape Cod restaurant for about 24 hours to give her weary staff a day of kindness break, she told the Times. She said people are always rude to restaurant workers, but this and what we're seeing today far exceeds anything I've seen in my 20 years of being a restaurant owner. Bank rate reports in 2021 that 2021 was the deadliest year for road rage with an average of 44 people per month shot and killed or wounded during road rage. In September of 2022, the U.S. Department of Justice reported that in 2021, more than 910,000 Americans were victims of domestic violence. Almost a million people We live in an age of rage, and that fact is not lost on anyone here this morning. We all know anger is dangerous when it is fleshly, self-centered, and uncontrolled. It is bad for your physical and mental health. It destroys family and social bonds. It costs families and governments billions of dollars a year. Anger. And more importantly, for the church, for Christ followers... Anger drastically undermines our witness of the gospel, and it saps our spiritual vitality. Over the last few weeks, I have been in contact with a pastor who I've been becoming friends with, who is being berated by a certain members of his congregation for holding a theological uh, view that is different from theirs. It is not an unbiblical position. It's just that they disagree with him. Just this past week, at a special call business meeting, the pastor was berated again in front of his family. 
and was fired from his position as a pastor because he held a different theological position that was not unbiblical. Anger destroyed the witness of this church on many different levels. We live in an age where anger, sadly, is more prevalent in our daily lives than it has been for generations. But the danger of anger is nothing new to human beings. God has made that very clear in His Word from the very beginning. Genesis. We see the first murder in human history caused by anger when Cain murdered Abel. What was the basis of it? Anger. We also see in Proverbs 27, 4, Wrath is fierce and anger is a what? Flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. And if you know anything about floods, when a flood comes down, a flash flood comes down, it wipes out everything in its path. It destroys. Then we also see in Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Not a little bit, much. And the Bible is also clear that the source of our anger is our sinful flesh. And we see that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Now do you see the rest of the list there? It's all highlighted. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. What is the root cause of every single one of those ones that is bolded? Anger. There is more about anger in that list than anything else. And it's all because of our human flesh. Even in our study of James over the last number of weeks, we've seen James already mention the issue of anger. Know this. He says, know it. It's true. It's settled. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger. And listen to what he says. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger. Because understand that if your anger is the wrong kind of anger, it will not and does not produce the righteousness of God. As we move into chapter 4, James is going to again bring us face to face with the issue of anger. But this time, he is going to camp on it for a while. Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and what we would consider the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He is writing to some of his flock who have been chased out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And as we have seen, the focus of his letter to his dispersed flock is how they are to live out their profession of Jesus Christ. How are they supposed to behave? When people look at them, what are they supposed to see as they live life? And he says, I want you to know this because you're living in very pagan cities and you're going to be constantly having to battle with not becoming like the people you live with. He wants them to know their faith should show itself genuine by how they behave. And we have to understand that too. There is no, there is absolutely no assurance of salvation if we don't behave properly because of our salvation. We are saved by faith alone, yes. But we must not let ourselves be fooled into thinking that the grand salvation we have through faith alone is just a profession of faith. It's not. 
Genuine salvation is always accompanied by works. And we see that also again in James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you are not a doer and just a hearer, then you are self-deceived. Genuine faith reveals itself in a practical change in behavior. This behavior changes, changes the fruit of a changed heart. One pastor put it this way, the presence of Christ in our lives will show up in our behavior. It will. And James puts it another way, for, apart, uh, for us, the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There is no claim and cannot be any claim to a genuine faith unless it is accompanied by good works. Works in this, in James's idea here is the idea of an evidence of behavior. James wants his people to know that lives changed by genuine saving faith will mirror more and more the life, the righteous life of Jesus Christ. And James, as we've said, and we've already seen a number of times, is a book of action. And as I've mentioned before, there are over 50 imperatives, behavioral commands in just five chapters. It is a book of action. And that's why it is hitting so many people really hard here. Because it's saying, if you profess faith, if you love God, if you have been changed, your heart's been changed by the Holy Spirit, your actions will be different than what they were before you were saved. It has to be. Some people change very quickly, some people change slowly, but there's always, always a change. And as we move into chapter 4 this morning, we will see that James again uh, weaves together this part of his letter with what he previously has written. And even though there always seems to be abrupt change between topics and James, uh, there is still a visible continuity throughout this letter. As we talked about last week and the week before, in the last part of chapter 3, James compares false wisdom, uh, which is self-centered, earthly, and demonic, with true wisdom that is from God, it's from above. The anger uh, James draws our attention to in chapter 4 is the opposite of true wisdom that brings peace. And let me read to you James chapter 3. If you want to, please turn with me to James chapter 3. It's on page 1290. James chapter 3. Listen to what he says in verses 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Anger is not born out of that kind of wisdom. It is the direct opposite of that kind of wisdom. A peacefulness comes into a person's life. It doesn't mean we're perfectly peaceful, but we also know that we are also not known to be a people of anger either. Apparently, James knows that some of his dispersed flock is struggling with anger. And that wouldn't be a surprise for us, would it? <clears throat> They've been persecuted, run out of town, resettled in a pagan culture with no real Christian leadership. Many would be struggling as refugees with not having basic needs met. And there would have been great temptation to compromise with the culture to make their lives easier. And all of this would have led to quarrels and fights which always find their source in an angry heart. And this anger is not, as we said, as I said before, the peace that wisdom from above brings into our lives. So please stand, and we're going to read uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, uh, one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Thank you. You may be seated. As I was studying this passage this week, I, something caught my attention in my studies. It wasn't something that was directly related to the passage, but it was. I listened to a sermon, and it, the pastor did a really good job preaching it as he introduced our passage. But what he did do was he read just like I did, and they didn't talk anything more about James chapter 4. You see, what he said and what he wanted us to understand and wanted his congregation to understand is before we can deal with the issue of anger in James chapter 4, we as Christ followers need to understand what the Bible teaches in a general way about anger, period. We, as, a, as Christ followers, we, we don't have enough biblical basis to understand what anger is. And so I'm going to follow his lead and we're not, we're not going to talk anymore about James chapter 4. We will. But what we need to talk about today is anger. What is anger biblically? Are we allowed to be angry as Christians? Or are we not allowed to be angry as Christians? What does the Bible say about anger in a Christ follower's life? Because unless we have that down and have that really solid in our hearts and minds, then James chapter 4 is going to be above our heads. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at anger. We're going to look at anger. And so what I'm calling this is an anger excursus. Yes, I went back and pulled an old word, okay, a word that if you're uh, in type of, especially upper level college or or seminary or something like that. An excursus, okay, is a pointed topic about something you're looking at. And so you'll have an author, especially in a book, they'll go down through there and start explaining something. Then they'll say, oh, by the way, if you want more information on this before you go any further, I've written an excursus and it's excursus A at the back of the book. And so we're going to have an anger excursus today. Let me begin with a question. How would you define anger how would you define anger if i was going to take the time and have you write it down 
How would you define it on a piece of paper? That's hard, isn't it? If we can't do that, then how do we know what it is? If we can't do that, how do we know what it is biblically? And so I would like to help us by beginning with a definition of anger. And the definition of anger is this, and it's in a good sense. We always normally take anger as a bad thing, but this is anger in a good sense, okay? Anger is a natural and emotional reaction to a perceived injustice. Anger is a natural and emotional reaction to a perceived injustice. Now, a lot of people will immediately go, yes, I can be angry. Yes, it's okay. But as we start breaking this down a little bit, we're going to find out that there's a lot more to this than what meets the eye in just those few words. Think about this. Anger is natural. Does that make everybody here feel better? When you get angry, it's natural. It's a natural God-given response to perceived injustices you have come face-to-face with in your life. Anger is not only natural, it is an emotional response. We as Christ followers are allowed to emote. We're allowed to have emotions no matter what my wife says about me. And this kind of brings comfort to our lives, true? Because sometimes we are uh, looking at being a Christian and we're supposed to be stoic and we're not supposed to uh, show emotions and we're not supposed to ever get angry. We're not ever supposed to be happy either. We're just supposed to be kind of even and stoic and nothing really affects us. What we're going to find out today is that is just absolutely not true. So anger is natural. Anger is an emotional response. Anger is also a moral judgment. It's a moral judgment because that's what injustice means. Do you, have to have, do you have to make a judgment of whether something is just or unjust? We do. It's a, moral, it's a moral judgment. But what we have to understand is anger of the Christ follower is a moral judgment based on the revealed will and character of God, which we find in God's Word. Anger is a moral judgment based on the revealed word, will, and character of God, which in our world today we find in God's word. It is a moral judgment because we have been made to be, uh, to be people who make moral determinations day in and day out. Pastor DeCourcy of Kindred Community Church in California made this comment about good anger. <clears throat> anger is not directed towards pet peeves, everyday failures, or someone's idiosyncrasies. And he's very, very right about that. Anger is not directed towards pet peeves, everyday failures, or someone's idiosyncrasies. Good anger is always directed towards a clear moral wrong as defined by God's Word, not you. It is a moral wrong that is contrary to God's will and or God's character. Any anger outside of that is sin and bad anger. And that is really hard for us to grasp. When we consider this, it drives us to the conclusion that we must pick and choose when to express anger and when not to express anger. It makes us evaluate if the anger we are feeling is morally justified. Is the anger I am feeling good because I have come face to face with a moral wrong as defined by God? We also see in this definition that anger is directed at a perceived injustice. 
Oh, that word perceived really makes it difficult. It really makes it difficult. When we think about this, it really humbles us because we have to consider that not everything I perceive as an injustice is actually an injustice. Not everything that we perceive as being an injustice is really and truly an injustice. Maybe I don't have the whole story. Maybe I have only came in halfway through the conversation. Maybe I don't know what was going on in the background. You see, it's a, at face value, it's a moral, it's a moral choice or a moral, moral judgment. It's natural and it's emotional. But we have to understand we're limited in our perception on whether what we see as an injustice is or is not an injustice. Proverbs warns about this. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In other words, if you're getting angry without knowing the whole story, without knowing everything about it, without knowing what's going on, it is your folly and shame because you don't have the other part of the story. We also see Nicodemus warning the Pharisees that they were going to, against the law because they were going judging Jesus before they heard him out. Look at what Je- Nicodemus says in John chapter seven verse fifty-one: Does not our law judge a man without? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus is going like, you guys are all up in arms about what Jesus is saying, and you've talked to him out in the, in the world, and you see some of the things and heard about things that he is teaching, but have you brought him in here and talked to him? Do you understand where he's at? And his point was, no, you haven't. Maybe what you and I perceive as being evil or an injustice doesn't rise to the level of expressing anger that is godly. Is the moral judgment you are making rooted in the fact that God's glory is being demeaned or God's word is being disobeyed or trampled on? Does the moral judgment you are making rise to that level where anger and indignation is appropriate? All of us have to be very careful because it's easy for us to say, yes, it does rise to that level, but in reality we have have not removed the log out of our own eye that keeps us from seeing the situation clearly. And we see this being addressed in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read it. Matthew chapter 7, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus himself says. Judge not that you be not judged. A lot of people in the world today say, hey, you as Christ followers can't judge. Why are you judging me? They like this verse, but they don't continue reading. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly this, take the speck out of your brother's eye. And basically what he's saying is, make sure you are perceiving what you're really perceiving. Make sure that what you are calling injustice is really and truly, according to God's word, injustice. I'm going to quote De Corsi again. He just has some really good 
quotable material on anger. Here's what Pastor DeCourcy says. Make sure your perception is clear and just. When you or I are going to express anger, it's got to be directed towards a moral wrong, something that is of significance and eternal weight. It's got to be directed towards a moral wrong, something that is of significance and eternal weight. We have so much anger in our lives, in our world, that really means nothing. It's just angry because it's something that affects me, or it's not the way I want it, or it's not. It, and it really, when we look at it and we back up, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. My wife and I are almost perfect, not quite. She's not here, so I can say that. And we have been angry at each other. We've been married for over 40 years. And one of the phrases we use within the house, and this is such a hard phrase, is our key words, when things start getting heated, is one of us asks the other one, and I won't tell you who asks it more, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And do you know how many times if you sit back in our anger and answer that question honestly, when you look at it, you say, no. No. It's not worth it. We must be careful because we have a tendency to be self-righteous. Self-righteous anger is never justified and it is always unholy. So that is the definition of anger, and it sets the foundation for us being able to distinguish between good anger and bad anger. It helps us distinguish between good anger or bad anger and good anger. And this is important because, as I said before, it is often the perception that Christ followers are never to be angry, and that is just not true. The Bible is clear that Christ followers can be angry and it's okay to have holy indignation and righteous anger. And Paul speaks to this very clearly. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry. So what's he saying there? Is it okay to be angry? <clears throat> we have permission from God through Paul to be angry. But then he caveats this, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. So we understand there's a proper way to be angry and there's a wrong way to be angry. And who gets to define that? Not me, not you, God does. And we have to understand that. It's okay for us to be angry and have holy anger. It's okay for us to make a moral judgment against a perceived moral injustice that leads to an emotional response. We know that. It's okay. We know this because we were made in the image of God. And did you know that God gets angry? Is God perfect? Is God infinitely holy? Does God get angry? Are we made in His image? Have we been given the ability to emote? Yes. Have we been given the ability to make moral judgment? Yes, we need to understand this. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. 
But it's always what kind of indignation? It's always good indignation. We also see in Nahum chapter 1, verse 6, who can stand before his, that is God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Righteous anger? Absolutely. Absolutely. God gets angry at disobedience, evil thoughts, the reviling of his son, and the list goes on and on in his word. God gets mad at what man thinks. God gets mad at what man does. And think about this. God also gets mad, gets angry at what man doesn't do. When there's a good to be done, and we choose not to do it, that's an affront to God. Sins of omission are just as serious as sins of commission. A lot of times we say, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. We have that phrase, I don't drink, I don't, uh, whatever, however, I just escaped my mind, okay? <clears throat> but the issue is, we only focus a lot of times on sins of commission. But we have to understand, there is just as many sins of omission that are in front to God. It's when He asks us to do something, it's when He asks us to obey, and we say, No. Because it's a good work to obey, isn't it? It's a good work to take care of one another. It's a good work to support the church. And if we say no, that's a sin of omission. When we, He made us in His image, He made us capable of emotions that can show righteous anger. However, our God-given ability to show emotions based on moral judgments against the perceived moral evil must be constrained by a humble holiness and an awareness that we have a tendency to be angry in the wrong way. And so we understand kind of what, that God gets angry and that's a positive anger. So what then is bad anger? What then is bad anger? Anger is bad when it is self-righteous, self-centered, petty, and not in accordance with the moral judgment founded on the knowledge of God's will and word. Anger is that is a self-righteous, bad anger is self-righteous, self-centered, petty, and not in accordance with the moral judgment founded on the knowledge of God's will. Filtered by a desire to bring God glory with an eye on things of eternal value, and not the temporality of this earth. That's what bad anger is. If you are the center of your anger, something has been done to me, it is bad anger every time. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. But that when Jesus had bad things done to him, how often did he get angry? How often did he make mention of it? Through the whole crucifixion process, beatings, illegal trials, all that stuff that he went through, it says he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. Sally, this bad anger is the anger we often seek to justify. It is shallow and self-centered. It is focused on earthly matters that have no eternal value. 
It is an anger that is based on the false wisdom of the world that we studied in chapter 3 that is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. It is an anger that drastically dims our witness of Jesus Christ to the world. However, we can praise God because we also have the ability to be like God and have the emotions of righteous indignation that brings glory to God. And I want you to understand that there is no better example of what righteous anger is against a moral evil than when we see Jesus angry, clearing the temple. There is no better example, there is no better illustration of what good anger looks like. We know what bad anger is. But we need to know what good anger is. And the place we need to go, the place we need to look at is at Jesus Christ our Savior. If you want to, please turn with me to John chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It's on page 1,129 of the Pew Bible. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. The Passover Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Was Jesus angry here? Did he show his anger very, very clearly? But as we think about that, we have to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is a loving and merciful Savior. He is. He came to earth to save us from our sins when we didn't deserve to be saved. He left heaven to dwell within His own creation to be despised by those He had created. What love and mercy He shows towards us every day of our lives. But in these verses we find Him displaying righteous anger. I'm going to Again, quote Pastor DeCourcy when he says, we got to fight the culture here. And all this nonsense that we hear, love and anger are not exclusive. Sometimes it's loving to be angry. Was Jesus Christ the embodiment of love? Absolutely. Was He also the embodiment of of righteous anger. Absolutely. They are not mutually exclusive. And we have to understand that sometimes it is a loving thing to be angry. Jesus' response to a moral injustice in these verses displays a loving, righteous anger, what a loving, righteous anger looks like. And Jesus demonstrates what good anger looks like. What does good anger look like? First, it is emotional. Again, we go back. Anger is an emotional response. 
Jesus allowed himself to have emotions. He expressed anger. And there are times when it is right and just for us to also express anger. It's okay to emote. We are not supposed to uh, suppress it down. We are to, it's allowable. We are allowed to have emotions. We also see in this that good anger communicates clearly. Good anger communicates clearly. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 2. Verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons very clearly, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Was he clear? This is wrong. I am making a moral judgment here. What you are doing in my father's house, in the temple, a place that is supposed to be holy and set apart for my father, it is wrong. And he was angry about that. Good anger communicates clearly. It is not rage-centered. It is not boiling over and splattering things all around it. It communicates, this is what is wrong. This is the moral evaluation that I made against this injustice. And for Jesus, it was right here. It was right. You know what he's saying here? What Jesus is saying is, my father's house is not a Walmart. That's what he's saying. It's not a Walmart. Everyone watching Jesus' display of anger knew exactly why he was angry. He communicated his anger clearly. He didn't suppress his anger against the injustice, and he communicated why he was angry very, very clearly. And we also see here that good anger is always God-centered. It is never self-centered. It is always God-centered. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His anger wasn't about lunch taking too long to be delivered. His anger wasn't about traffic or another car pulling out in front of him. It wasn't because someone dis disrespected him. It wasn't because he was falsely accused. It wasn't because he didn't get the promotion he thought he deserved. It was because the Jews had turned God's holy temple into an unholy place of trade. And that's what made him angry. It was God-focused, God-centered. It had nothing to do with himself or a friend or even his family had to do with God. It was about God's glory. It was about the proper ordering of life within God's house. Good anger also expresses itself at the time of the abuse. He doesn't let the sun go down on his anger. He doesn't brood over it for a couple of days, getting himself all worked up, building his building his case so that when I address this person, I am going to just eviscerate them. I'm going to back them into a corner and show them how wrong they are. That's not what he did. He expressed itself at the time that he saw the abuse happening. He didn't wait. Good anger also always solves a problem and it doesn't create another one. It always solves a problem and doesn't create another one. Did Jesus' anger solve a problem here? Absolutely. What happened to the injustice that was happening, the moral, immoral injustice that was happening in his father's house? It was cleaned out. It was done. 
they left. How many times does our anger and our outrageous, our rage and the things that we uh, lash out about, how many of them create more problems after we're done than was there before we even addressed it? How many people get hurt? How many families have been destroyed? How many people have beat up doors and walls in a house? Creating other problems that weren't there before they addressed it. You see, it solves a problem. And that's a question you need to ask. If How I'm going to express my anger now, is it going to solve something or is it just me venting? If it's just you venting, guess what? How often is that wrong? Always. Always. And this is so important. So often the display of our anger, even at times when it's righteous, creates more problems than it solves. Good anger motivates us to solve moral injustice. It moves us to action. It moves us to want to fix the problem if we can. It is never, as I said, just venting over a moral injustice. When we can just vent, or when we do vent, it often just creates more problems. And here's one that we often miss in this passage. Good anger is measured and controlled. Good anger is measured and controlled. And we see this in verse 15. And often we just read over this. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Have you ever considered what Jesus is doing there? It would have taken him time to make the whip and cords. I mean, it wasn't just laying there. It says that he did what? He made them. So in his anger, in his desire to correct the wrong, he walks over, however he did it, wherever he found it. We don't know where he got the cords, but did he have to make a whip? There was at least some time there to consider what he was doing. There was at least some time to contemplate and review, what am I getting ready to do? Now, Jesus, of course, didn't have to do that in the same way we do because he and his response to what was going on is perfect. But do we need to be, have our anger be measured and controlled? Absolutely. When we respond without any thought, and we often hear that in phrases like, I just lost my temper. That usually always equates to what? I opened my mouth before I thought. I reacted before I gave it consideration. Good anger never loses its temper. It doesn't. It's always measured and controlled. That doesn't mean you have to think about it for two hours. Are there times when we can make a moral judgment, rightly so, fairly quickly? Is there often times when we can look at a moral judgment and, and figure out how it needs to be handled to solve a problem fairly quickly? Yes. But there are also times when we need to turn around, walk away, and pray and say, Lord God, how am I supposed to handle this? Are there also times for that too? Yes. Jesus 
responded to a moral evil, and it was not an uncontrolled outburst. It wasn't an angry, emotional rage. It was measured and controlled. Jesus practically shows us what good anger looks like. He saw a serious moral offense against his father's house, and he became emotional about it. He clearly communicated his displeasure against the offense and immediately took action to resolve it in a measured and controlled way. I'm going to read those things again. And I want you to think back at the last time you got angry. Think about what Jesus did as compared to what you did the last time you got angry or what I did the last time I got angry. He saw a serious moral offense against his father's house and he became emotional about it. He clearly communicated his displeasure against the offense and immediately took action to resolve the offense in a measured and controlled way. Does that describe the last time you got angry? Was that your heart the last time you got angry? There is a significant difference between the good anger displayed by Jesus Christ and the bad, self-centered anger so often found in our lives. When we consider the anger in our lives, do we see a mirror image of how Jesus got angry? When I walk up to the mirror, even though we're not talking so much about the mirror today because this is an excursus, okay? But when I look at myself in the mirror and I look at the last time I got angry, does it match with how Jesus Christ exhibited good anger? That's the goal. And praise God He knows that we are going to fail at this often. Amen? We just have to be humble about it. We have to be upright about it. But we cannot use it as an excuse. We cannot use the excuse that this, God knows this. God, God made me this way or God made me with a, a passionate personality. No, that's just excuses. We need to look at it and say, how do I do this like Jesus did it? How do I respond to, to moral injustices like Jesus did? Just one, maybe two quick notes of applying this to our lives. Just one quick thing to apply that we have learned this morning. As I was thinking about Jesus, as I was thinking through this, Jesus' crucifixion came to my mind. Jesus never got angry when he was illegally accused in the court, when he was, an, when he was illegally beaten, when he was mocked, when he was crucified. He didn't get angry for the moral injustices against him. He never opened his mouth. Think about that. Think about many and how desperately evil the moral injustices that were being done to him during his crucifixion. He never said anything. But he walks into the temple. He sees the temple being used like a first century Walmart. And he gets angry. For the sake of his father, for the sake of his father's glory, he gets angry. Had nothing to do with himself. That speaks volumes to us. He didn't get angry when everything was against him. But when something was a moral injustice against his father, when it was God-centered, he got angry. My heart was so convicted as I thought about this. How many times have I gotten emotionally angry at a perceived moral injustice against me and my family compared to how rarely I find myself getting emotionally angry in the same way when God's name is used in vain, 
when the one who saved me is mocked. I will unload on somebody. I will be angry at somebody because they did something to me. But when my Savior's name is used in vain, when I hear improper language, and it's just like, oh, it's just no big deal. I'm not saying that we should react in an angry manner every time we hear God's name in vain or every time something like that happens. But we need to, does there need to be a response inside? Yes. There at least needs to be, and more generally, more often than not, more passion against the injustice, the moral injustice, when it is God-centered than when it is against me. And we have to understand this about anger. I'm not saying we need to have an angry, angry response towards every moral injustice committed against God, but I'm asking myself, why, more often than not, have I had... Do I have an emotional response when it's against me, a moral injustice against me, and I completely ignore the moral injustice against God? You want to know something as we close this morning? Sometimes it is God-like and Christian to be angry. Sometimes it is. In fact, I would say that you and I should be more angry than we are. Another pastor quoted it this way, you can't be good and not be angry over what is bad. You can't be good and not be angry over what is bad. And so often we look around the world and we're only really angry at the things that affect me and mine. And we don't care, we don't get angry, we don't have that heartfelt anger when we hear of abortion and child abuse, and trafficking. We don't. We don't. It's just part of life. We get angry when somebody disrespects me, but when I see bullying in the school, I either laugh or walk away. It means nothing. That moral injustice against a person made in the image of God and I just walk away instead of saying, no, this is wrong, and you will not do this. How many kids in school today need somebody else, need a Christ follower, somebody who claims to be a Christ follower to stand in their stead and say, no, this is wrong, I am here to stop this. Is that fixing a wrong? Is that addressing it immediately? Absolutely. How many times do we let things like that just slide by? But we don't let it slide by if it's done to us. We need to get angry at times when we look out at the world and see what sin and the devil has done to God's creation. We need to get angry at times when evil wears its ugly head. Anger, good anger, motivates us to rise up against the evil and be a light for Jesus Christ. Good anger motivates us to, be, to use our time, our money, and our talents to address the evils that we encounter and to do good works. Being angry in the proper time and the appropriate way is a good work. And we were created to do good works. Anger motivates us, as we have learned, to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. But our anger must be good anger 
and not bad anger. So as you think about this, bow your head for just a minute, please. I want you to look in the mirror, in your heart. What kind of anger is your life characterized by? The anger that is good and in line with what Jesus Christ demonstrated for us? Or is your anger more often than not self-centered, petty, not conserved with eternal things, not designed to fix the problem Look in the mirror. Does your anger bring glory to God because it draws people's minds and hearts to God? Or does your anger draw people's attention to you and what has been done wrong to you? Now would be a time for you to Confess. Maybe you've shown anger that you haven't confessed. Maybe now is a time when you walk out this door that you go and ask for somebody's forgiveness because of the anger you have shown them that was not godly. Just talk to God about that for a minute. Father God, thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you for giving us the ability to have emotions, to be able to make moral judgments. Thank you for those blessings. But Father, we also know that because of sin, the sin that indwells us, the sin that is part of our flesh, we also know, Lord, that those things that you created in us have been marred have been corrupted. But Father, because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Lord, we actually do have a choice in how we respond. And I ask, Father God, that for every person here today, every Christ follower here today, that we would become much more aware of our anger. That we become much more aware of how self-righteous and we can become so easily and that we would look to you and humbly bow ourselves to you and say, Lord God, how does my anger right now match that of Jesus Christ? And Father, if there's somebody here this morning who says that anger is a normal part of my life, it is normal day in and day out and is usually focused on things that are not godly, Father, I pray that you would change their hearts. I pray that... what they have seen in your word this morning and what we will see in future weeks in James chapter 4, that, they will, that you would change their hearts, that they will submit to you and they will come to you and admit that the anger they have on a normal basis is wrong before you. I pray, Lord God, that if somebody is angry this morning, that this message would help them to get right with you. And Father, for those of us 
all of us. If there's somebody that we've been angry at, that we've been angry towards in an inappropriate way, Lord God, I pray that we would not rest until we have asked for forgiveness. From you first and from those that we have harmed because of our anger. Father, again, thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.